Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. On this week's episode of One Hour Intern, I learned from 8th Headmaster of the Groton School, Temba Machiavella. So to get started, let's just set some context for you in the, the world today. What have you been doing during Corona time and quarantine to maintain productivity and get through this experience? Oh, well, what I've been doing is to try and find a way to center my life as well as to center the lives of the children for whom I'm responsible to focus on what can be done to improve their situation, especially being in a boarding school. And what I've found is that most leaders rely on what other leaders are doing. And if no one is doing anything, no one does anything. So I have taken a very chemistry-oriented approach. You know, in chemistry, there are two types of reactions we talk about when we talk about substitution reactions. There's one big one called concerted. You do one big deal kind of a thing, and you say, this is the way we're going. And then the other one is doing things stepwise based on data and evidence. So I've tried to combine both by saying I would like the children, especially the children who are in vulnerable situations, whether it's, it's economic or it's an unhappy family situation or mental situation. How can we bring them to a safe environment, predictable environment into a school? And I said, okay, I'm not going to wait for anyone. I'm going to try and find a way to use medical experts to help me. And so I start with product I'm trying to get to and have that big project as my endpoint. And in the beginning, what are the elements that I'm going to use? And what are some of the catalysts that will provide me the pathway? And then in the process, I'll let my colleagues who are other heads of schools know what I'm doing. So I don't know if that helps. So that's what I've been trying to do just to keep focus. And this is basically informed by how we fought the big scourge of racism in South Africa, apartheid. You know, we had a big government-sponsored racist system. And how do you tackle that? Some of my colleagues and friends said it's way too big for you high school kids to think you could do it. Others of us felt, you know what, we can take a stepwise approach and try and whittle it until we get to, to see freedom in our lifetime. And we did. Thank goodness. So I've been using those lessons in how to deal with coronavirus. And I was a high school student myself, and I know what it's like to deprive of an education. I do want to talk about, go back to the beginning of your story, but just for a little bit more context about you right now, making all these decisions and taking that step-by-step approach, but trying to have a big influence on your students is something that can take a lot of time and definitely when you're totally virtual, can you can become unproductive. What have you steps to remain productive and kind of be as effective as possible to make those decisions and make those steps? I had a very a habit of waking up a little before six and now I decided I was going to get up before five and sit down in my office before I've even had coffee and write down exactly what I'd like to achieve for the day including exercise, which I never used to think about before. So I started off walking a mile and now I walk up to five miles just to clear my head 
and to try and remain focused. And whether it's, you know, there's rain or whatever there is, the elements notwithstanding, I just do that. And I come back refreshed and I focus on the task at hand. And you can do that. All of us can do that in our heads, but you've got to do it in real time and grade yourself. So I've been putting myself in the position of a student who's often given assignments that they have to finish, tasks they have to finish. And I've been grading myself. And there are days when I've failed completely. And I just sit back and watch basketball. And I grade myself and say, I failed this paper because I was watching the Lakers, you know? Or I failed this paper because I was doing politics. And then I go to bed and say, you know what? I've got to get up tomorrow and try again. So that's how I've been motivating myself. And you're right, it's been very isolating because there's hardly anyone but in a big 400-acre campus and you hardly see a human being inside that early in the morning. And when you see a human being, you have to be far away from them. So it's not been easy. It's all self-discipline. And I have failed more than I have succeeded. And have you found any ways to personally deal with the isolation and not being able to see anyone? I have actually... I know that you were going to ask me this story. I've really been looking at biographies of people who you think this is funny. I like watching the Shawshank Redemption, the movie, and think of myself as being one of those guys who just shut into one of those cellars, you know, for not doing anything other than just to say something that did not sound good to the authorities or reading stories of people before Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, what was going on? all the way up to what was it like for those slaves when they came, you know, to the U.S. And I also, I don't know if you know this part of me, I mean, I also have uh, a Jewish background. What was happening in those places for those people? And once you put yourself in their shoes, like watch Schindler's List, you realize that, you know, we have it good. Our situation is okay. And this thing will pass. So I really go back to history even though I'm a scientist, to try and get me going. Yeah. Other than Shawshank Redemption, is there any podcast, movies, books that you've been reading that help you get that message? There are two books I've read which are not well known. One of them is by Steve Biko. I don't know whether you're aware of Steve Biko was an activist who inspired a lot of young Black people. And he wrote a book that was entitled, I Write What I Like. And because he was banned, pen name was Frank Talk. So there are all these series of articles written by Frank Talk. And only to find out after he died, after they, he was killed, that actually it was Steve Biko. So I put myself in the shoes of a man who, you know, was trying to fight and what was going on in his mind, make sure that he was not identified, but was fighting for the greater good. And then the other thing I've been doing is I've been helping a friend who is writing a new portrayal of Nelson Mandela, which is going to be a book that will be released, I think, in December by Yale University. And he also was influenced, he's my age, he was influenced by Steve Biko. And he actually asked me to read a book called How Can Men Die Better? This is a book written by Benjamin Pogrant was writing the story of not Nelson Mandela, but a fellow prisoner named Robert Sobokwe, who on Robben Island in South Africa, not only was he sent to Robben Island, he was isolated from all the prisoners because he was too brilliant 
and too influential to be put in together with the other prisoners. So he was being interviewed by this man and there was no bitterness in him in saying that he was trying to do whatever was best for all human beings. So I tend to read those kinds of inspiring books and stories. And of course, like I told you, I watched Schindler's List. I know this is dark, but you do need to be reminded that we have it good. Yeah, definitely. On another note, during this unprecedented time where we've all had to stay home, there's been terrible social justice issues that have come to light. Just yesterday, Justin Blake was shot seven times. What have you as a headmaster of a school and as a social justice advocate been doing to help with the new social justice times? I have been, without trying to be too headmasterly, I've been trying to persuade those who care to listen, young and not so young, that this is no time to be pointing fingers. It's time for action. It's no time to be saying, oh, I'm a white person and I don't know what to do. It's time for action. It is no time for, as one of my sons said, I'm exhausted. We can't tire. We can't be tired. So I've been giving all those talks to those who care to listen informally, as well as formally during our faculty meeting to try and really galvanize the teachers into action by simply saying, who is here, who is not here? Specifically, who is not here in terms of representation in what we teach and how we teach and who we teach. And simple steps like that, as you can imagine, I'm going to stepwise, help me feel that I'm getting something productive. Just today, I convinced a trustee who's a friend who gave a very, very moving story about how he stood up against racism and gave up his citizenship. He didn't want to talk about this publicly, and I said, it's a time call for action, and I'm asking you to speak up. There is also a history of the school that is being written currently, and I've said to the author who's writing this story, just make it relevant. Because if you're writing a history at this time, future generations or even young children nowadays will say, what was Groton doing during the era of racial injustice? What did you do? So what I did along with the trustees was highlight the fact that in our main building, we have all these pictures of who has been at Groton or who is considered to be the great philosophers. And we felt that there are some people who were missing, who is not here. So going against tradition, because there are only so many spots, we are moving some of the bus that represent people who've been there since the school's founding and putting them, not throwing them away, because we believe, I believe that we should add rather than delete. And we're asking them to step aside for a while so they can put up the bus of Mahatma Gandhi, Eleanor Roosevelt, Nelson Mandela, and Rosa Parks, so that the students, when they're in that room, all students can see themselves in the people who are surrounding, who are considered to be the greats. So we're in the process of having those bus added 
And the trustees were fully behind that effort. They actually are the ones who came up with the names. All I said was we should ask ourselves who is not represented. So that is going to be the theme at the school. I'm addressing the faculty again in preparation for the return of students. And I'm going to tell them the theme for this year is going to be a call to action. And we all have to ask ourselves as we're teaching, who is not here? Whether you're teaching literature or you're teaching history or even science. Yeah, that makes sense. Now that we know what you've been doing recently, let's jump all the way back to 1975. You're 17, the same age as me in South Africa. What's life like? Well, life is very difficult because I escape at night to go and get planning with national leaders because apartheid has become unbearable and we want to make the country ungovernable. And contrary to previous generations, our generation, just like your generation of activists, decided to take the matter into our hands. So what I'm doing is I am organizing, I am liaising with people from all over the country to see what actions could be taken. And of course, in the process, one of the mornings after a night when I'd been away, four white policemen come into my mother's class and I get arrested. But then, of course, as I'm getting arrested with my mother teaching the class, I remind my mother that, you know what? There is no struggle without casualties and I'm not going to be a casualty. And the rest, as you probably know, you know, led to my being released on bail and we had to report to the police every day and my escaping bail and going to political exile in Botswana. And before you were arrested and before you became a, such an important social activist, what was your personal experience with the apartheid? I lived in two worlds. One world was the world of the poorest of the poor, where our home was the only home that acted, that had a car, had educated people. So we were literally the only, only educated people in our village. So we wrote letters and read letters for the villagers because our house was a post office. And we read those letters, and in the process of reading letters, even as young as I was, the first time I got to know how to read, nine, ten years old, reading them was very painful. Because these were letters written by people who could not see their families, because they were working in the mines. And the miners that were digging the gold and diamonds were not allowed to come home. They were only allowed for three weeks a year to visit their families. So things were happening in the village. Things were happening in the mines. And you can imagine being at that age, someone telling his spouse that I've found another woman. I no longer love you. Even think small things like that. And of course, in our minds, along with my brother, who ends up being a judge, we are just wondering what kinds of families these are because their children are at school with us. So I lived in that village where there was not a single white person in our village. And we were. Literally, the, the bourgeoisie, pretty much. We, we were the post office, we were the car, we were the ones who supplied the village with things they didn't have. And then during school breaks, I would visit my grandfather, 
who was a college professor. And that's when I saw the brutality of the apartheid system because they arrested him and they exiled him, they detained him, and, and they put him in solitary confinement back to the Shawshank Redemption, you know, where his health deteriorated and he had done nothing other than to say, we've got to get rid of the system. Now, he was the biggest influence on his grandchildren because he felt that we had the power in our hands to try and change the system using education and scholarship. So I was brought up in that milieu of the poorest of the poor on one hand and then scholarly men on the other hand who, who attended Yale University who's, and I was caught betwixt and between. And of course, this man was Nelson Mandela's uh, teacher and all these people would come to the house to seek advice from him. And I'm describing a childhood that was not quite normal. That was between two worlds. You know, a world with no running water and a world of affluence, but great political activism. And how did the balance of those two worlds affect who you are and your mentality? That is a beautiful question because I accept people not based on how much they have in their pocket, but based on what actions they take on behalf of others. And I refuse, and I will do so until I stop breathing. I refuse to look at a person and say, you don't have enough money, therefore I will not respect you, or you have too much money, therefore I will not respect you. I believe that it's innate in all of us to seek justice for those around us. And we just have to find that. So it, is, it really impacted the way I look at students who, have, who come from backgrounds that are as different as you can imagine. And it has been proven that your background and upbringing will not necessarily lead you to being anti-justice. If you're properly oriented by your family and you open your heart, no matter where you come from, poorest of the poor and the riches of the rich, you can find a way to empathize and go beyond empathy to join forces with those who need help. You said that your family is what really plays a role there. So beyond your grandfather being a teacher to world leaders in social justice, which is definitely something, how did your parents and the rest of your family affect you and help you get those values? My mother, having grown up in that environment of the well-schooled for generations and so on, was able to adjust, be one with the poorest of the poor, with no running water, because she loved my father. And because she loved our father, she raised five sons with one thing in mind, and she would say to us, do unto others as you would have done unto you, the golden rule. And probably just as much as our grandfather influenced us, she as a teacher was a huge influence because she was the only black woman teaching at our school. The others who taught at our school were white teachers, some of whom had failed in white schools because our schools were segregated. And she 
could not be in the same room with them. And therefore, she spent her break serving students, giving extra help to students, and never wasted a moment you know, uh, in trying to help. She never complained up until she died. She never complained. And she faced adversity head on. That's where I realized that of all her siblings, she's the one with those strong Lithuanian roots that made her an example to us all. So a teacher by profession, a biochemistry teacher who loved science, even when she had cancer, she would argue with the doctors and say, you guys, I don't think you're monitoring the amount of potassium salts in my, you know, in whatever you're putting in. You know, so she believed that scholarship, you bring scholarship all the way up to your deathbed. So I think that whoever she is, she is teaching people because she was a teacher's teacher. And with your mom and your grandfather and your whole family, were there any particular moments or stories that are really important to helping you understand those values or shaping other values in your life? I'll tell you one story, maybe, maybe two if you have time. One of them involved going from South Africa, which was segregated, through a region called the Free State, where black people were not allowed to be in the station, in the, in the train station. There was no waiting room. And if you're trying to get a train, you had to go through the train tracks, over the train tracks to the other side. And it was a very, very busy station. And there were seven of us with my mother. She would count all of us as we went across. One year, as we're going you know, across the train station, the guard, the train guard said, you're not booked to be on this train. And therefore, you're not getting on the train. She argued with this guard and said, I have booked here my papers, here my tickets. And he said, you're not getting on the train. It's around midnight. So she told us all to get on the train. And so we got on the train and tried to argue with this guy. And the train started pulling off without her children in this very cruel place. So she started chasing the train and got on the train. And when that guard came over, she said, look, you were wrong. Here's my name in this compartment. We're going to a place which was a long, long time, far, far, far away. That's one moment that really showed the side of apartheid that was very cruel to a mother. The other one involved just a simple, you know, the, the, the day I was arrested, my mother continued teaching, not knowing what was happening to me. She was determined to finish the class. And all she said to me after, you know, I said to her, there's no struggle for casualty. She said, okay, boy, you'll be all right. That determination in the face of, of adversity, now as a parent and a grandparent, taught me a lot, you know, about how to be resilient. And how old were you when you were arrested? 17, your age. Wow. The last biology class I ever took. And it was just a question of principle. I said, I'm never, ever taking another biology class. The last lesson I got was from my mother. Wow. So after you were arrested, you fleed South Africa to work with other social justice leaders to help fix and reshape the nation. What were you doing with those other leaders? What decisions were you making and how were you trying to reshape the nation? Oh, my goodness. What did we not do? 
there are some things I can't even go into, you know, you know, but I'll tell you that some of the greatest leaders of South Africa used to pass through our house. And we're talking about the likes of Chris Hani, who was assassinated in 1993. We're talking about the Joe Slovos. We're talking about, you know, um, talking about black and white, you know. And what is interesting, you, may, you hear me mentioning Joe Slovo, you know, um, the, the activists who passed through our home did so because they trusted that we would not turn them over. So we became a, a halfway house for those who were going to make incursions into South Africa. We also became, when Nelson Mandela was about to be released, we happened to be in uh, Boston. And Senator Edward Kennedy called all South Africans to the JFK uh, library and told us that, and brought in this man, Piers Nodier, who was like a giant in our struggle, who said, please don't tell the press, don't tell anybody, but I've come to tell you that Nelson Mandela is going to be released and you guys must prepare the way because one of the first places is going to come to his boss. So sitting in the JFK library and then Senator Edward Kennedy says, oh, please, please come to the family's living room because uh, Reverend Nodia says he's going to deliver a very important message. That was a big deal. So we're doing things with anti-apartheid activists in the U.S., in Europe, as well as with those who are going to organize in South Africa and everything else in between. But I'll tell you that the U.S. ambassador at the time in Botswana was very instrumental in getting me to escape because there came a time when it was literally dangerous after they killed my best man, dangerous to live in Botswana. So he arranged for us to, to escape Botswana. So I did, I escaped twice. And how did it feel having to flee from your home and seeing your best friend get killed and going through all this? You know, on every the 26th of July, I think about him a lot. I, there are certain songs. The last song that he and I, you know, loved and we, you know, I still play that song when I think of him. His name also happened to be Temba. So I think about me being Temba and my grandson being Temba and then Temba Mochobane. So it's, Temba means hope, faith and trust. So I honor him by telling his story to everyone who cares to listen. And I don't want, I, had, I was with him the night before he died. And my regret is that I could not hold his coffin because the same funeral way was there were police from South Africa and soldiers, as well as the age, they wanted to know who his friends were. And we had just escaped. So we're trying, we're, hide, we're in hiding. So I never really got to speak or even, you know, be a pallbearer, which was my regret. And how did you deal with that regret and move on? Do you think I've moved on? I don't, I don't know whether I've moved on. What, happened is, what happens is if, if nowadays, that as it happened three weeks ago, one of our friends died of COVID in South Africa and I was asked to speak on Zoom and they gave me 30 minutes notice. And at first I was saying, I'm not prepared. This is just too devastating, you know, to do. And then I pretty much think I heard our mutual friend's voice saying, here's your chance. So I said to the organizers of the funeral, you know what, folks, I'm going to speak. I'm going to put on my best suit and I'll sit here at Groton in where I'm sitting right now. 
and I'll speak. And I felt light afterwards. And after I finished speaking, I think my friend Temba was killed in 1985. Wow. We have to keep going. Yeah. So now's probably a good time to take a break from all the serious stories and a little coffee break. An opportunity for you to tell a story that makes you laugh or makes you turn red with embarrassment. Yeah, well, it's hard for a black man like me to go red, but it's least part of my, you know. Metaphorically, turn red. Yeah, I know. My Lithuanian roots make me feel, you know, I can go a little red. So when I was 15, I spotted this girl and I couldn't take my eyes off her. And then my cousin was somewhere in a chalet, you know, talk about that world I was telling you about, that the, the world of comfort. So in this beautiful beach, and it so happened that my uncle had locked the key inside our chalet and no one could get, and the window was way up at the top. So people said, who is the most athletic? And I said, of course, I'm the most athletic. So I tried to climb the wall and I, I mean, literally fell on my, on my butt. <laughs> and then this girl I'd been looking at, just goes up the wall, opens the window, jumps in. And I was like, I am not going to be outdone. I did the same thing out of sheer determination. And of course, I sprained my ankle, but I still made it and got to open the door. And she is now the mother of my children. She was 14, I was 15. So you never know. And so... Did your friendship with her and your relationship with her grow even as you escaped and you had to flee as you were working on your social activism? Or did you come back to South Africa and meet her afterwards? Oh, no. When I came to Botswana, which was my place of exile, my aunt told me, even though she would dispute this, that there were some girls who come from South Africa, which was not safe. And they were looking for me. And I was like, okay. You know how when you're young, I'm like, girls, of course, where are they? Couldn't find them. Then I heard that there was a party. I mean, I had a girlfriend, or a friend was a girl, let me put it that way, who was at the time Miss University. She, she was quite uh, striking. So I took her to this party, and when I got to the party, they said that you're not invited. I said, okay, let me just go in anyway. Look, I'm with someone you'd like to see dance. So. I got in, and there she was, seven years after I'd last seen her, the same girl I had left in South Africa, who ended up being, you know, my wife. I asked my cousin to look after the girl I'd brought in, and that was the end of that girl and the beginning of a relationship that has lasted for 36 years now. Yeah, wow. But she had to go back to South Africa, and she would drive to see me twice a month, and be interrogated, be stopped, be harassed, sometimes have to sleep in the car that would let her through the border because, you know, she was... And they asked her to be... A, here's a story for you. They asked her to be a spy, to spy on me and what I was doing, and they're going to get her a car and an apartment. And she said, okay. And that's when we decided, you know what? Let's get married. Don't go back there. And we got married. I mean, people have all kinds of reasons why they accelerate marriage, but that's how I accelerated our marriage. Wow. That's incredible. Back to 
your linear story as you're being a social justice activism and literally changing the world. You also attended school in Nigeria, the University of Ibadan. Is that correct? That is correct. Can you talk about your, throughout your life, your educational experience? I was lucky to attend University of Ibadan. I remember I did not get a high school diploma. Go figure that. I'm a headmaster of a school. I don't have a high school diploma. So I did correspondence work with Cambridge, did my O-levels in two subjects. And then I went to a school in the northeastern part of Nigeria where Boko Haram is now operating, believe it or not. And I did my A-levels there. And then I didn't do so well, especially in physics. I still struggle with physics. I'm a chemist. And I asked the University of Ibadan to let me try and be a chemistry major, the chemistry major. And they gave me a chance. You know, I did my education there. But of course, when you're doing chemistry and you're in the lab and you're doing activism at night and so on and so forth, it's not easy. So Nigeria was a very interesting place because there was also the base for the ANC for a long time. The ANC is the liberation movement. And we had a lot of discussions on how further away we were from the base, which is South Africa, and how are we going to return back to South Africa? So I would go every year, every summer, every break, summer break, I would fly to Botswana. Now, I'll tell you, this is a story that many African people don't like to hear, but I tell it all the time. I saw detention in six African countries because there were African countries that were terrified of South Africa. And because I didn't have a passport, I had a UN travel document that said he is who he says he is. I got in trouble all the time whenever my flight you know, was late from one country to the next and I didn't have a continuing flight. One point I was actually taken into a cell in Zimbabwe where I spent five days with two murderers and a rapist and someone who had committed stock theft in a cell that was totally black, no light, and the food would just be shoved, you see, back to Shawshank Redemption shot under the door. And for a toilet, for a bathroom, there was one hole inside that cell. Only because I was a political activist and I didn't have an ongoing fight to my country of refuge, which was Botswana. So I think that is a podcast for another time, but I never gave up. I just kept going because remember the greater goal that you're trying to achieve in doing things stepwise. And my erstwhile fellow Zimbabwean activists were not ready to help release me because they'd become important. So that's a little too confusing, but you know what? Uh, Robert Mugabe, as wonderful as he was to some people, was also very brutal, very cruel to other people. And they happened to have been at school with my father. It was during his reign. It was not during Ian Smith, the white government's reign. It was during this recently liberated Zimbabwe, liberated in courts with Mugabe, where I was arrested and I was detained and I was put in a cell for five days. So it was not easy going around the African continent until Nelson Mandela was released and he became a hero. And then we became liberated. Everybody said, oh, we supported you. You know what it's like. Being beaten down and 
put in prison and going through all these experiences, it seems like you wouldn't be able to take the next step, or at least I feel like I wouldn't be able to take this next step. How did you motivate yourself to keep going and working harder and harder to get to your goal, even though things were just getting worse and worse? I kept on thinking about those I left behind, those who were killed. My best friend who was killed in Botswana is an English teacher. He was an English teacher and he loved Shakespeare. And I kept thinking about the fact that I could not give up on an opportunity to improve myself and my scholarship just because I'm beaten down and I'm tired and I'm exhausted. The same thing I tell my children nowadays is I'm passing on the baton to them to take on this medal of, and to you, William, to take on the medal of social justice. You just can't give up and be exhausted. If you're not doing it for yourself, you're doing it for others. So back to also what mother said, do for others and unto others as you have done unto you. So it's, I don't know where I got it from, but it just came out because so many people, there's so much pain of those, including my, my cousin who was killed and I ended up naming my younger son, Taps, you know, after him. And all he wanted to do was to go to school and become a medical doctor. So I tell the students here as well that some people sacrifice for you to be where you are. It may not have been financial sacrifice. It may have been sacrificed by being away from home. Just do your best, if not for yourself. Motivate yourself by saying, I'm doing it for others. Yeah. On a whole nother note, after you've played such a major role in South Africa, you moved to America full-time and you got your master's in science at University of Kentucky and you became an organic chemistry teacher and a headmaster in all your years as an educator. What have you learned in general? You know, we had a teacher who used to say, every month, just put a little bit of money in the bank. And I give the same advice to young people, you know, just take the good experiences and bang them so that when you have the bad ones, you can look at the good times you've had. And I did that, and it was not without failure. I failed miserably when I came to New York City. I went up and down the breadth of Manhattan trying to have people hire me, educate me, and they just could not because they did not recognize my degree. I failed miserably when I worked at the Museum of Natural History trying to get more hours so that I could earn enough money so that I would stop lining up in soup kitchens. I failed when I could not provide for my family, despite wanting to provide for my family. But I had so much in the bank that I could go to, literally, and use and say, you know what? I'm going to use the fact that so many people have struggled to make something of themselves. And then I met this man, Eugene Wexler. Eugene Wexler and his wife, Evelyn Wexler. Evelyn lost all her relatives in Hungary during the Holocaust. And Eugene Wexler's father came from Russia. And they became our godparents. They just wanted to adopt us in Riverdale in the Bronx. 
And when all else failed, I never, we never even asked them for a penny, never asked them for anything. But when they were about to throw away their car, they gave it to us. And when we're on our last penny in August, August month is a tough month for teachers. They would come in and look at our fridge and stock our fridge up. So there were people around us who were ready to help. But those two, that couple, they were like a godsend to us. So my son only knew them as grandma and grandpa. And he was, they were convinced that they were related to them. So when you've had horrible things happen to you, you don't ever want to see another human being suffer. If you notice, even in the shootings that we've had, the families are the ones who are pleading for people to protest peacefully. They don't have that because they don't want people to go through the pain they've gone through. So I don't remember your original question, but I hope I've answered it. Better than what my question was asking for. Thank you. We've kind of gone through your whole story, starting at being a kid and all the way to you now. What do you see as your future, your next step moving on from here? You know what, William? I had a risk of sounding too ambitious. I have unfinished business here at Groton School. There is unfinished business in a whole lot of schools, including Sacred Heart Prep. And that unfinished business is not being able to answer who is not at our schools and why are they not there. And my unfinished business, I started a program here along with the trustees called Affordability and Inclusion. And I need to finish that. And it's going to, you know, and I'm convinced that we're going to get there. We need, and we have made great inroads in trying to make sure that the face of Groton School looks more or less like the face of America. Because we don't just seem satisfied to say, asking the question, who is here? We're asking ourselves the question, who is not here? But it's very expensive. But going back to what I said, there are people, some of the most unlikely people are the ones who have supported me the most. Because they see the bigger goal of transforming the institutions, whether it is in venture or in private equity or in schools. Institutions have to be representative in order to be relevant. If they're not representative, it's on us. So with my four to six years left here at Groton School, I want to finish that business. And I've been speaking to a whole lot of organizations and schools and companies about constantly reminding them to ask the question, who is not here? Yeah. And do you think that that question extends beyond just institutions and goes to the individual person, they need to ask that same question? Or should they be asking a different question, doing a a different action? You know what? You have just educated me. Thank you for that. You're actually making me think about how to make that a question everyone could ask themselves. And I never thought of it that way. I, I always thought about this from an institution's perspective. So thank you for that, really. I think, based on what you just said, we have to be very careful that we don't 
see ourselves as saving others. We should view ourselves as serving others. And to serve others, we have to ask the question, how can I help? How can I be useful? And not be prescriptive and say, I know what I can do for you. This is what I can do for you. So from an individual's point of view, I'm going to actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to use you in my remarks to the students about how I thought I was imparting knowledge. And a 17-year-old from Atherton gave me knowledge and said, bring it down to the individual. And I love it because I'm a chemist. And it always starts with the atom. It starts with the individual. And as he asked me the question, I began to start thinking about the, the answer that the question I'll be asking the students. So individual responsibility on this. So thank you very much. Serving others by asking the right question. So for institutions, it is who is not here. And for individuals, it is how can I serve you better? Yeah. Now, if you, after your whole life experience, had to describe success, how would you explain it? Hmm. I've been incredibly lucky, fortunate, blessed to have touched so many young people in my life. And that for me is all the success I need because you all are going to inherit the world that we will not be a part of. And there's nothing greater that we can do than hopefully, even if it's just 0.1%, making an impact on people like you, 17-year-olds, because I love this age group, to move forward and change the world rather than be changed for the world. Change the world so that it is a better place than the world that we ourselves left them. Because you are inheriting this world. So I've been very fortunate that there are thousands of students there that I've taught in from all over the world. And hopefully, they'll take something from that experience. My failures, I wish I'd had an opportunity to impact more young people, particularly the poorest of the poor in the public schools of America. Not because I don't believe that it's worth impacting those who are in independent and private schools, but because it's probably the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, to take someone who is in the most vulnerable situation and give them the tools to navigate this world. I don't think I've succeeded in that. And that's my regret. And do you have any way that you plan on addressing that regret or kind of advice that you would give so that others can help you make sure? Oh my goodness. There is a program here called Epiphany for really vulnerable children from one of the most difficult, you know, Roxbury and Dorchester for black and Latino students. It's quite a, a tough neighborhood for those kids. And those kids, I have not really gotten close to them. And I'm hoping that that program can be and will be endowed by someone because every year 
they come to Groton School for five weeks in the summer, and they say it's the best part of the year for them. But we have to try and raise funds to help the program every single year. So that's something that even when I retire from Groton School, I hope that I can still be involved because they're all going to mainly going to public schools. Now to the last segment of the interview, the PowerPoints. Imagine there was a one-page presentation about our conversation and you had to pick three bullet points from your life about the most important things that helped you become the person you are, have the change that you had on the world. What would those three things be? Oh my goodness. Everybody has potential. That's the one thing I would have to, we have to admit. Everybody can be transformed. That potential can be transformed. And go and be a catalyst for the transformation. And do so without waiting for all the conditions to be ripe. I'm using chemistry. There's potential in everyone to be transformed. And all they need is catalysis to get there. Well, that's a close to the interview. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.